It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In Europe, we hadn't seen a metropolis taken in war since 1945. Russian forces today captured their first major city. The mayor of Kherson saying Russian troops are now in control there. It fell in the war's early days as to the north that great Russian armoured column was approaching Kiev. Remember that? But now, after eight long months, Kherson is free. Ukrainian troops forced President Putin's war machine into a chaotic exit last Friday. The joys of Kherson's liberation keep on giving. This is the beginning of the, the end of the war. Kherson, a port city on Ukraine's south coast, was home to over a quarter of a million people before the war, roughly the size of Newcastle. Hopefully one day its inhabitants will all be back living in a peaceful country. But for the moment, freedom has come at a price. Russia's retribution has been brutal, with multiple missile strikes hitting various Ukrainian cities. 85 missiles, according to President Zelensky. Among the theories being investigated is that one or more were brought down by an air defence system and landed just across the Polish border. Or maybe it was a Ukrainian air defence missile. Either way, the Russians bear the responsibility. But what about liberated Kherson? As the Russians fled, stories of brutality and torture poured out. What scars has the occupation left on its remaining inhabitants? What poison has it left behind? And how can a devastated city be returned to something like normal life? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, occupation and liberation inside Kherson. You would just walk along the street and it would be like... You walk along five minutes later, it was just constant, constant sound of shelling. That's Mark Bennett's foreign correspondent for The Times and Sunday Times, talking about Kherson. He was among the first Western reporters to visit the liberated city. Mark never was a war correspondent. I was the Times' Moscow correspondent. Now I'm a foreign correspondent. When the conflict started, he was living in Moscow with his wife, 
daughter and cat Misha. But as the walls closed in, he left after 25 years. I've been covering the war in Ukraine. This is my third trip since I left Moscow in May. He spoke to me from Odessa, another port city about a four-hour drive away from Kherson. Mark, had you ever been to a newly liberated city before? No, it was an um, incredible scene, actually. At times I felt like I was acting in a Second World War film or something. I mean, not, not even so much. I mean, it's the, the scenes of liberation were incredible, of course. But if you walk down to the river and see the bridge, which is blown up, and then you can see the pontoon bridge, which the Russians tried to escape on, which has also been blown up. And then as we were standing on the riverbank, the Russians from the other side started shooting across, so we all had to make a hasty retreat from there. We were based in Mykolaiv, which is around two hours away from Hedersod, and it wasn't clear that we would be allowed into the city because the Ukrainians were being very wary about letting journalists in because there were lots of stories that there were Russian agents still running around, hiding in basements, that there were mines and booby traps everywhere. But we drove down and we managed to talk our way through five checkpoints, and incredibly found ourselves on the outskirts of Hedersan. As you approach the city, the surrounding villages are just devastated, destroyed by the fighting, by Russian bombing, by shelling. There was hardly a building left intact. Then once you enter the city, there's very little destruction because it was taken quite early on in the war. But the thing that strikes you immediately was just the sheer number of Russian propaganda posters, billboards on along the side of the roads with things like Russia and Kherson will be together forever. The Russian and the Ukrainian people are one people. The people of Kherson are the pride of Russia. <laughs> with Russia, you will have free medical care. You will have a bright future with Russia, which, <laughs> which was, was just incredible. Right. It must be rather strange to have these signs saying it's great with Russia when round the corner you have, I don't know, a destroyed Russian personnel carrier. Yeah, it's just totally surreal and... It's even more surreal when you're talking to someone who's been tortured or had to go into hiding because their son is a member of the Ukrainian armed forces or someone who's been living with electricity for, for weeks or just suffered intense hardships. And then there's this kind of almost like North Korean style kind of everything's fine with Russia, the bright future, we will be happy. The contrast was <laughs> incredibly striking. Now, when you went into Kherson, how easy was it to get people to talk to you? Everyone wanted to talk. It was just an explosion of emotion and adrenaline. I mean, the first day was before the Ukrainian army had really got there and the Russians had left. It was as close to anarchy that I've ever seen. And it was kind of on the outskirts of the city. It was getting a little bit tense with kind of drunken conversations. I mean, some people in Kherson supported the Russians. Their recrimination starting now. I mean, lots of them fled, but some of them are still there. I mean, we saw this elderly woman started her sentence with, my son served in the Soviet army. And the guy next to her, who was middle-aged, just picked up his cup of tea and threw it at her and said, your son killed Ukrainian children. He stormed out of the cafe and we were talking to her. She, she said, he didn't even hear me out. My son's 50. He served in the Soviet army. And he wrote to me back then that if he'd been in the army and he'd been ordered to go to, to invade Ukraine, he would have refused the orders. So I mean, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of tension, I'd say. Yeah, I have to say, it sounds a little bit like some of the stories you got when Allied reporters went into liberated cities in... Holland and France in the Second World War. Yeah, and with, with a kind of 21st century update in a way, because when the Russians were there, they 
only allowed the people of Kherson to use Russian communications. So everyone had a Russian SIM card. Everyone was connected to, to Russian mobile networks. And then when the Russians left, they cut the signals. Apart from if you stood on the very bank of the river, looked over at the Russian positions, you could still get a very, very faint signal. So it was this kind of surreal scene at night where people gathered along the bank of the river and it was totally dark, just illuminated by people's screens in their hands as they were trying desperately to get signals to send messages to their families to let them know they're okay. I have to say that's an incredible image as they stand on the on the riverbank, not least because the Russians can fire at them from the yeah, other yeah. side. That was only the first night because as soon as the Ukrainian army um, established control, they imposed a curfew from 5 p.m. and they, they, they were strict about it, so... The whole city was basically empty from 5 p.m. Now, what else did people tell you about what it was like under Russian rule? You've got some fairly tough stories. Well, we went to a former detention centre and some of the inmates had come back to speak to journalists and some relatives had come to look for their relatives. We met one man whose name was Vitaly, who was 65. His son serves in the Ukrainian armed forces. He was at his son's house one day, just taking care of things after his son fled. And the Russian army surrounded it, dragged him out, put a sack over his head, took him to this interrogation center and asked him where his son was. They accused him of, of storing weapons. They accused him of being part of a territorial defense group, even though he's 65. When he couldn't or wouldn't answer their questions to their satisfaction, they attached electrodes to his groin, which they then connected to a wind-up electro generator and turned on the power. It's called, in, uh -huh. in, in Russian police slang, it's called the phone called Putin. Huh. So they tortured him, and then they threw him in a cell, and the prisoners were ordered to learn the words of the Russian national anthem. And if they couldn't, or if they made a mistake, they were beaten. And then we met another guy who has been through the same experience with the, with the electrodes to his genitals, and he'd also been burned, he showed us a scar. Did Vitaly have any idea why the FSB had come round to his son's place? I mean, who who told them about his son? He doesn't know exactly, but there are quite a few informers. There were collaborators. The overwhelming majority of people support Ukrainian independence, but we still have people who relate with part of Russia for whatever reason. But there's obviously like a, a major difference between kind of idealizing your Soviet youth and then having Russian rockets fall down your head to liberate you from Nazis that you can see with your own eyes don't exist. Morozhenoi nostalgia. Yeah. So you, you're talking about the Russian posters declaiming this unity and so on. Uh, had they taken other measures to try and stamp out Ukrainianism, if you like, and to try and replace it with a Russification? Well, they had a newspaper, a local propaganda newspaper, which again was full of Ukrainians, full of Nazis. One of the main photos showed this skinhead, Zeke Heil, and then the, the caption was, and after this, how can you deny that there's Nazism in Ukraine? But I immediately recognized the photograph, and it was from a far-right march in Moscow in 2012. Huh. I, I found that, I just, just to confirm it for myself, I found the photo in two-minute search, and it's, it's, it was the major photo that Reuter used for their report on the far-right in Russia. So fairly crude. I don't think anyone was really taken in by it. The other things they tried to do was they set up Russian schools, how did parents deal with the fact that their kids were being taught things in schools that obviously pro-Ukrainian parents thought were just plain wrong? They didn't send them, <laughs> basically. The only people who sent their kids to the school were the ones who were pro-Russians anyway. The whole thing doesn't seem to have been thought <laughs> out at all. I mean, Russian state television has just been shocked by the fall of Hedersol. I mean, because it's only six weeks ago 
that Putin said that Hedison will be part of Russia forever and had all these propaganda posters up about it. And the it's kind of signs of dissent on Russian television. I was watching a clip this morning where a pundit was saying, like, people are laughing at us. We put up signs saying, Hedison will be part of Russia forever. And the Ukrainians are already changing to say, Hedison will be part of Russia until November. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, I think it's, I mean, it's all probably Putin's biggest humiliation of his 22 years in power. Coming up, the greedy chaos of the Russian retreat. That's in just a moment. I'm Roger Boys. I'm the diplomatic editor and foreign policy columnist of The Times. I must say it's a fascinating time, a time of war. I have some experience in Eastern Europe, so my heart is really with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And I'm able to follow in my columns the results, the global famine, the global energy crisis, all these things that are affecting each of our lives all from this one small bloody field in Eastern Europe. I can only do this, we can only do this, thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So subscribe today, please, by visiting thetimes.co.uk slash stories of our times. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together, because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. In many ways, people over here were rather expecting Hesson to fall earlier, but the Ukrainians took their time about it. Can you talk a bit about the campaign to take Kherson and why it went the way it did? The Ukrainians talked up the start of the campaign to make the Russians think they were going to launch an attack on Kherson. And then when the Russians brought all their troops down to defend it, they went for the Kharkiv region, which is in the north, and successfully pushed the remnants of the Russian troops out from there. It's just incredible how easily fooled the Russian military was. Then once they'd 
establish control over Kharkov. They just began to use Western missiles to knock out the Russian supply lines. So in order to avoid a total humiliation of I mean, 30, 40,000 soldiers killed or, or taken captive, Moscow decided to announce a retreat on national television. Having comprehensively assessed the situation, I propose that we take up defensive positions along the left bank of the Dnipro River. I understand that this is a very difficult decision. OK, I agree with your conclusions and proposals. Military experts said to me it's a very strange move because like, you don't publicly announce you're going to retreat. I think it was more of a political move than a strategic move because if the Russian public had been confronted with the facts of the withdrawal after it already happened, there may have been a bit of shock. This way, at least, they had a kind of chance to control the narrative. The residents of Kherson saw this from the inside. They saw what the Russian units were like and what they were doing. What did they tell you? I had lots of, lots of stories from locals, stories of people being pulled off the streets, people being beaten. One man told me that during the whole occupation, he would weigh up like every single word she spoke to anyone. Essentially, if you were suspected of harboring pro-Ukrainian views, you would be grabbed, taken to a basement, beaten, tortured. So basically, it was Stalinism in the 21st century. Stalin's troops supposedly were famously disciplined. How disciplined were the Russian troops from what the Kherson residents could see? Not at all. I mean, the residents were saying they were drinking a lot. A few people told me that there were infighting between the different kind of factions within the Russian army. So you would have the Chechens fighting with the FSB, the Chechens fighting with the Wagner mercenaries, Siberian troops fighting with the Russians, with the Chechens. They would hear them shooting with each other. And I think they thought that it was their army come to liberate them. And it turned out there was just a Russian shooting at each other. And there was a lot of looting as well. I was showing them a garage full of washing machines. It seemed they were getting ready to send back to Russia. One local told me they looted everything they could before they left. That the whole period of occupation, they were sending things back to Russia. How are you, she says. I survived, her friend replies. But the Russians kicked my door in and stole everything. One guy told me that the Russian soldiers came to his house put a gun to his head and said they'd shoot him if he didn't give them the keys to his um, 12 trucks. It doesn't really fit in with Putin's claim to respect and love the Ukrainian people. When they left, did they all leave in an orderly fashion? They all left roughly around the same time, but it seems that some of them left in more or less orderly fashion, but some kind of left behind. One Russian soldier said that his unit's last order was to change into civilian clothes and um, get the fuck out of here any way you can. Hey everyone, guys, I'm alive, almost healthy. In one unit, I won't name which, the last order was to change into civilian clothes and fuck off any way you want. So, some of it was organised, some of it was just basically soldiers running for their lives. That last was tricky because they had to go over a really big river, didn't they? Yeah, they blew the river up after them. I spoke to one um, Ukrainian military source, and he told me that even before the retreat was announced, the Russians had been leaving on pontoon bridges, 
but the Ukrainians were just bombing them. And then the order would come in, build another pontoon bridge 50 meters down the river. So they would do the same thing. The Ukrainians just wait for them to finish building and bomb it again. He also told me that at least 3,000 Russian soldiers in the last week surrendered to Ukraine by calling the hotline. So Russians who wanted to give themselves up, if or when their superiors attempted to stop them driving to the Ukrainian lines with a white flag, they would just kill them. If you're interested in numbers, I was told that there were 63,000 Russian troops in Kherson. That was the highest point at the occupation. 24,000 of those, even before the retreat, had been killed, deserted, or captured. Basically, it's a military disaster for Russia. There's lots of talk about this could be the end of Putin's rule and things, but I mean, the Russian public is fairly apathetic and very unlikely that you, there will be a public backlash. You left Kherson, but obviously the liberation of city is only a starting point because presumably the whole atmosphere of the city has been absolutely affected. Can you tell us about the difficulties in terms of relationships between people and also setting up some degree of normality? Well, the relations between people, as I said, will have been poisoned. People were informing on their neighbours for having this pro-Ukrainian views. But there's also seem to be a kind of a blitz spirit, you know, like everyone pulling together, everyone helping each other out. But, uh, I mean, the infrastructure, when I was there, there was no electricity, there was no running water, there was no heating, and winter's coming soon. The city's phone and internet connection cut. Residents crowding around soldiers' communications in desperate hope of contacting loved ones. On their way out, the Russians crippled almost every vital service. The Russians destroyed the city's television tower before they left as well. Blew it up. This vast television tower just collapsed. They blew it up just before leaving. A final act of punishment for a population that until days earlier they said was part of Russia and would be forever. They also stopped feeding the, the prisoners in the local prison. So 500 prisoners, I was told, escaped from the local room. Um, jail. I was in a cafe and one guy started talking to me and then halfway through our conversation he confessed that he was one of the prisoners who'd escaped. I was like, what were you in prison for? <laughs> and he was like, robbery. He was like, yeah, but I didn't do it. And I was like, how long were you in prison for? It was like seven years. It was like seven years for robbery. He was like, I didn't do it. And I was like, so why are you telling me this? He was like, I hope you could get me out with you. I want to go back to Western Ukraine. <laughs> um, so amazingly surreal atmosphere, kind of joyful at the same time, undercut with this tension. I didn't even mention that there was artillery the entire time I was there, basically. Well, after the first day. The first day was quite quiet until the evening when the Ukrainians started pounding the Russian positions and then the Russians started shooting back. Then the next two days, you would just walk along the street and it would be like, Pfft. you walk along five minutes later, it was just, just constant, constant sound of shelling. Everyone was just used to it. Don't blink an eyelid. It's like, don't you worry about this shelling? They're like, nah, we're used to it. Do the people in Kherson and the Ukrainians you met, did they think that this was bringing the war to an end anytime soon? Or did they just see this as one in a sequence of hard-won victories that they were going to have to have? It's the biggest victory they've had yet, and everyone was happy about that. Zelensky was asked if this was the beginning of the end of the war. This is the beginning of the, the end of the war. I haven't met a single person who says they would be willing to give up Crimea for peace. Everyone wants Donetsk back. 
everyone wants to be pants back. The battle for Crimea will make the battle for Hedison look like a minor scuffle. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Mark Bennett, foreign correspondent for The Times and Sunday Times. You can find all of Mark's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Olivia Case and James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk. Have a good weekend. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.